clubhouse. What I said, I did so because I wanted to hurt you. Just as you would hurt me. I know. I'm deeply sorry. I know that too. This is Meet at Delmonico's, the Alienist Podcast. I'm Mike Caputo. I'm Sheila McGann. Tonight we're talking about episode five of season two of the Alienist, Angel of Darkness. The episode was called The Belly of the Beast. Teleplay for this episode was by Gina, Gianfrido, and Karina Wolf. It was directed by Claire Kilner. Claire coming back. Uh, this is, I think, her third episode this season, and uh, Gina's second. So, uh, yeah, you know, uh, we're getting get a little rhythm going here with the, the dark, dark minds of these ladies. What did you think of this episode? Wow. Yeah, this one was this one's a little crazy. I do love the uh the blossoming thing between Karen and Laszlo. John and Sarah. Holy fuck. This was a full-on let's fuck episode of the Alienist. Not something we get a lot of, but the kink was strong in this one. Yes. There, they, was... The, there was lots of smoldering looks. Like, there was no way this episode didn't end with Luke Evans' ass just showing to the world. We have the crazy adult breastfeeding, you know, right him in saying. the alley. There was just so much. You know, right in the alley, good old fuck session. It was, uh... Okay, that gave me the cringes. That didn't... Alienist hot business. I'm all for it. Oh, Let's get to it. That was gross. I, I, and the whole, like, shit with Libby. Yeah. <laughs> yeah Libby, I mean, wow. Libby wow. was off her rocker in this episode. We're, we pick up the morning after she bludgeons the matron to death and then, you know, paints her face up a little bit. And, you know, we have that scene with the nosy neighbor downstairs and we hear there's a baby in the room. So a bunch of stuff has happened since we last saw Libby, including she went and got baby Anna. Let's get to the part where Libby actually leaves the place. Uh, Team Alienist finds the matron propped up at the dinner table. As as Sarah walks through the apartment, she kind of reimagines the crime. So let's talk about Libby, though, because Laszlo has a theory that she's trying to live another life while Sarah's having her visions. You hear him say that kind of, it's like ethereal in the background, but he says she's trying to live another life. Yeah, and I was she's curious, trying on another life, yeah. Yeah, trying on another life. And I was curious if, if you thought that that gelled with the scene of her making tea and propping the matron at the table. You know, was she trying to live a high society life here? I think she was trying to figure out what she's doing next. I don't think that this was necessarily her wanting to live a high society life in the matron's house because she was slamming it the night before as being cluttered and matronly. So I don't think she was necessarily thinking high life there. But I think with the fine tea set and the the guests kind of sitting at the table, I think she was trying to imagine herself in a simpler, less complex time, but not necessarily there. I'm not a murderous mom, so I don't really know how to like fit myself into her shoes. But (laughs) if thinking about it, I was thinking that she was just trying to sort of order herself for the next phase, like calm herself down. That's interesting. There's a lot going on here with Libby, right? Libby is definitely trying to live the uh, live another life but I, I think well for whatever her motivations i think Lazo's right and and that 
the the high tea set. This is something that she's not used to doing. This is something that's not part of her normal existence. And kind of the same way when she goes to breastfeed Anna and and the baby bites her, and she has that kind of like mini panic freakout session where I swear to God because of what this show is, I, I thought for sure she was going to hurt the baby in some way. I was ready for it, but she doesn't. She resists herself. She she holds herself back, but she she has like a real kind of break. And she talks about how her baby doesn't bite. Yeah. And yeah, so she she's doing this whole chameleon lifestyle thing, very wolf in sheepskin kind of life right now in the matron's apartment. So I think there's a lot of stuff going on in her head. I think there's a lot of breaking down, which is kind of what Laszlo and the team eventually discuss later in this episode. They talk about how her different personas that she wears are all starting to blend together. She can't keep the walls of them up anymore. Right. And I think this scene is a really good indication of that because, you know, later on we learn, it seems like she's, she has done this numerous times with babies mm-hmm. and she hasn't gotten caught. So she's been able to be disciplined in her keeping her day life at the lying in hospital in as one kind of Libby. And then she has crazy, stealing babies and breastfeeding them in the dark in the orphanage Libby, the shy, endearing Libby who goes to lunch with Sarah. So she's got a lot of different faces that she wears and all these different masks that she wears. And she's been able to keep them separate. But now with the confluence of events that we're watching, they're all kind of starting to fall in on each other. That's what's really propelling her breakdown, that they're all starting to kind of coincide is is making her break and that she is breaking is causing her to lose the discipline which is making them come together faster so the the point that laszlo made where she's trying to reorder her thoughts Mm -hmm. that's what got me thinking that she needed to sort of do like a ritual thing like of making tea like it's you know calming it's 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 routine it gives you a chance to like set your mind if you're not thinking about what you're doing you know if you're just making tea you know how to make tea you know, so that for me was was where that motivation came from that she's trying to maybe like fix herself, you know, to kind of move forward, fix her mind. So a couple of big things came out of this scene also. And and I think you and I hit upon it or at least talked about it. And I, I know I've definitely had the theory in my head for a couple of weeks now, ever, ever since the Isaacsons dissected Baby Nap's stomach mm-hmm. and they had... You know, they drop that kind of weird twist that there was breast milk among the charcoal and the poison in the baby's stomach. I had had the idea that the baby wasn't getting the poison directly, but was ingesting it through the breast milk. Mm-hmm. And the show kind of made that clear and explicit. Oh my God. Yes, they did. Plus it, plus it explains why she had charcoal teeth in last episode too. So I'm glad that we got kind of an answer to that because I think that's where they're going with it. But kind of getting that confirmation, it made me feel good that I was able to put that piece of the puzzle together with mm-hmm. the Isaacsons and Chrysler, you know, all kind of confirming that. But the fact that she's doing that, the fact that she's diluting the poison through her breast milk with the charcoal and now has stopped doing it shows such a predetermined mind. The difference between murder and manslaughter is malice aforethought. The idea that you have, you think about what you're doing and then you go and do it versus a crime of passion where you are, uh, you're acting out of a rage of emotions and you do something horrendous. You kill someone that's manslaughter. Now, you know, malice aforethought is I'm going to go kill that motherfucker you go there and you kill that motherfucker. That's kind of the the thinking mind she has here. She wants to poison the babies, but she's doing it in a in a very methodical, planned out kind of way. And it's that, drawn out. Like 
it's not quick. It's really disturbing. It all goes to the profile that they're building where where she's punishing the babies out of her own grief, but also her own rage. So the, the babies are meant to suffer in this prolonged way where they're getting poisoned, but they're not getting too, too poisoned. But now the baby maybe has grown to the point where, you know, the mother in the nest will notice that the cuckoo egg is not her own uh, egg anymore. And so maybe now she's not diluting the poison because she's ready to hurt the baby. You know, she has now, she has now the, the artifice that this is her real baby is now gone. We see all of that in the episode kind of playing out, right? When she has kind of that breakdown with Gugu Knox talking about how I think she doesn't think I'm her real mother. Mom, yeah. yeah. Yeah, like real, I mean, watching her play out in real time this episode, what they're talking about was extra chilling because it was just a real visual reinforcement of the things that they're talking about. And it's so much more horrifying when you see it in practice versus just hearing them talk about it. Absolutely. We learned that Libby's last name is Hatch. So congratulations to you. You are you are more than John Moore. Ah. Uh... You are hitting on theories in multiple episodes. I guess your Colleen breastfeeding uh, theory didn't work out, but you were dead on with the Libby with the Libby EH connection last episode. Well, so I didn't know her last name, but I was like, Libby is kind of short for Elizabeth. So. Right, and you and it turns out you were dead on. And you were dead <laughs> on, and so as soon as we got the hatch part today, I was like, Yeah, Sheila, good for you. <laughs> Maybe I shouldn't have been surprised at this point, but to find out that she's not only she wasn't only a tenant at the orphanage and kind of connected to the dusters. She's fucking Gugu Knox's girlfriend. Like literally fucking Gugu Knox. Yeah, literally, literally, <laughs> literally. fucking Gugu Knox. Like mount up, big boy, and tie the time to suck In the alley. milk. Yeah, I mean, oh, it was oh, but, so gross. Was it though? Because yes, that, it really was. Uh, the clink of the belt and all that stuff was kind of hot business. It didn't turn me off nearly as much as it probably should have, which probably says something about me. I thought it was kind of hot. As one of the two people in the room who's breastfed, it is not something that is a turn on in any way possible. There's a real biological, primordial, evolutionary thing at work there, though. But it does explain for me how she was able to sustain her milk. My understanding is, and that's how wet nurses work, is that as long as she had continued to breastfeed a baby, the milk would have been produced. That's how you get every now and then a yes. mother who continues to breastfeed a baby until they're four or five. Yes. Um, but she well, would she's have, been multiple babies, though. I mean, she's but been But they've not been, like, back to back. I mean, like, if you don't breastfeed your baby within, like, a day, your milk production drops. Oh. Uh, well. It's really hmm. quick. So, you know, that's why, you know, there's pumps and things like that, not to get too detailed. But you have to really be a constant nurse agent in order to keep that milk production up enough to feed a baby exclusively. Then I guess Gugu is a good uh, substitute in between babies. But I have this, he's, yeah, he's a good well, baby. So I have this, oh, he's, a, he's a good baby. So I have this whole theory. The way Gugu is talking to her in the alley, he, he talks about, you know, we'll just go get another one. He's fully on board in supporting her through this melted illness. Who would have thought Gugu Knox being a supportive boyfriend? I mean, psychotic and murderous, and deranged, sure, but kind of supportive in, in a in a in a way that was oddly touching, as much as it was dangerous and and disturbing. Uh, the way he's talking about, we'll just go get your new baby, and she's like, I don't want a new baby, I want my baby. Like the, again, I continue to feel a lot of pity for Libby. I know she is a villain, and I know she is a bad person, but I also feel extremely bad for her, and, and I think it's because the actress is portraying her in such a 
complicated, disturbed way. But in the in the time when she was lucid and keeping her personas locked up, I also found her very endearing. So I think a lot of that is still lingering for me. So I found like the scene I found very when she's talking about how she wants her own baby and she's near having a breakdown. I found it all very, uh, very sad. You know, the pity that I was talking about at the end of last episode, I continued to feel but for her. I just feel bad because she's somebody who's in desperate need of mental health and is not getting it. And the actress, Rosie McElwan, is playing her so well that she's delivering on the vulnerability. She's delivering on the psychoticness in such a way that it's you are drawn to her. You do feel bad for her. Meanwhile, how can you feel bad for someone who murders babies and kills a matron and her boss and paints her eyelids? But you you are. You're sitting there and you're just like, oh, I feel really bad for her. So. She's doing a stellar job, I have to say. Yes, I, I agree with you there. In your notes, I know you had a couple of questions relating to the fact that Libby, when she sees herself in the paper, uh, the Times releases like a sketch of her in the paper, she's right outside of Sarah's office. There's also the scene where she is uh, in the park and she's dressed all in black and she's smoking that cigarette and she gives the daggers to the lady. When you, Those two things... Together with the tea, and this was the point that I was going to wrap in from earlier, the, uh, the high tea, I have this theory that when we first talked about Libby and we talked about Sarah taking her to lunch, one of the things that we hit upon was that Sarah was a mentor figure for Libby, a woman who was successful and put together, but also approachable, uh, you know, someone who was of, of an upper crust, but was accessible to someone of her level in society the the portrayal that libby seemed to really latch on to her that, that being so impressed that she had her own business card all of that i think these three different things that i just named all play into the idea that libby is emulating sarah if you look at that black dress that she's wearing in the park it's the exact kind of black ah. dress that sarah would wear She's smoking a cigarette, which is not something we had seen Libby do before. We very noticeably get a shot of Sarah lingering over. She's looking at the death photos of the crime scene photos of Matron, and she's smoking a cigarette in a very similar way to the way Libby was holding it in her hand over the park bench. The fact that she's outside of her office. I think she's single white femaling Sarah here and, and trying to live like her. And I think that's what the tea was getting at. That is an excellent, excellent observation. I'm sitting here, I'm like, Damn! Which is great because it really develops this tension that they came close to each other at the office, right? We just miss Libby when she leaves the eyeballs on uh, on the chalkboard with the stupid. So, and but then they do have a confrontation at the end of this episode. But this is only episode five. We still have three more to go. We're going to get more Sarah Libby confrontation in this season. Is my bold prediction, and it's going to be very personal for Libby because she even hints at it a little bit when she's holding the gun on Sarah tonight. She talks about how she says something essentially like, I thought you would understand or be different. Like she was trying to identify with Sarah and she was kind of disappointed that Sarah was taking this position with her. Yeah. She says that I thought we understood each other, but you're incapable is what Libby says to Sarah. So it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out. And if, if Sarah gets aware of that, if she can use that to try and talk Libby down, you know, somehow diffuse her because I don't think Libby is committed to being a murderess. I don't think she necessarily wants to. I think she wants someone to help get her baby back in whatever way her un unhealthy mind can understand that. If Sarah can figure out a way to reach her, I mean, Sarah was dead on at the very beginning of the season when she said that you need a woman for this case. I think at the end of the day, we are going to need a woman, but you're going to need a Sarah to be able to reach Libby to, to, to de-escalate her. My big theory for the, for the episode 
Ta-da! Bravo! I think that's a very, very astute observation. I do. Obviously, Libby is operating out of the burned-out boarding house, St. Ignatius, right, that that Gugu owns. She leaves a candle, leaves the baby. She just leaves. Like, prior to her snap with reality, she was going to work for a whole day, presumably eight hours plus commute time. And no one is taking care of the baby. This does not this does not fly with me. It just, it's not within the realms of possibility. That baby is a baby that needs to eat or drink, well, drink milk. Based on her age, I'd say every three to four hours. It's a point of question that I'm just like, hmm. I mean, she was able to meet Sarah for a luncheon, though she was continuing to look at the clock. Maybe the matron wasn't the hard-ass clock watcher that Libby describes her at. Maybe it's because Libby is bouncing in and out of the lying in hospital down to her hovel to uh, breastfeed a baby. Also, I mean, she proved tonight that that baby Anna is portable. She was at the park. She was at she was at the matron's. Uh, she was at the matron's apartment and got her to the apartment in between murdering her last night and this morning. And take that nice bath and wash her hair and prop the matron up. Like a lot, she she was a busy bee in the middle of the night. One, maybe these things aren't too far apart from each other. But two, maybe the lying in hospital. Is uh, it may be the when Laszlo calls it the miasma of chaos that he says in episode four after the ball when he kind of he, he says Marco created the miasma of chaos in which the killer lives. Maybe that's part of it. No one knows where the fuck anyone is. They just kind of come and go as they please. She really actually has a great job for getting out of there and getting back whenever she wants to. And actually, the lying in hospital is not all that far from Hudson Street. So it would be a quick jaunt across town. Because both of them are in lower Manhattan. So you could presumably go on your lunch hour, feed a baby and be back. There you go. So look at you with all the theories here tonight. A little bit of realism. Let's switch to Laszlo though, because this was the first time this season where we got to see Chrysler in like full on Chrysler mode, really breaking down a murder scene. We saw him at the nap autopsy where he identifies the baby, but he wasn't really doing any great Sherlock Holmesing there. Tonight, he's in like he's enthralled with recreating the scene. What did you think of Laszlo and his CSI work? The scene with the matron, that's what I was just like, oh, we're just getting like the full Laszlo. It was like Ace Ventura when he's nailing down each of the, the clues to get to his conclusion. So it was just like, yeah, you feel that? Um, but in Laszlo's way, because he would never do that. But that was me. I was like basically cheering that he's returned. He's breaking down the crime scene. He's saying that's appalling and enthralling. Meanwhile, John is just standing there like this is this is madness. But he did answer my question from the last episode that he did that uh, Libby did seek out the matron expressly to kill her. So I was really thrilled that he's back, that he's gotten out of the funk. Like you said at the last episode that he's at rock bottom when he buries the nap baby. He's got nowhere to go but up. This is drawing him out and bringing him back to the team the way that he's intended to. It was great to see him back at action. Him and the Isaacsons reenacting the crime until the time that they reenact the matron being pushed up to, to the wall. And they talk about her motivations that it was a punishment and that she wanted to see the life leave her body to all the way to dragging her into the kitchen. And then after that, those gross rigor mortis sounds and then oh, you know, they, they get the memento mori eyeball things. Lazo is he's like a kid in a disgusting candy store, just kind of, you know, putting it all together. And it, this is where he really comes alive. So it was great to see him. Daniel Brohl is never better than when he's in full Chrysler mode. Yeah. So it was great to watch him tonight. I, I thought it was really interesting that he talks about how uh, the motiv- the motivations for what she did to the matron are different than what she, why she has been kidnapping the babies and or killing the babies. And he refers to it as a mutation. Mm-hmm. And it, it was just really interesting just to see that you know, we forget so often we see him as more of a uh, like a CSI tech 
And we forget that he's really a forensic psychologist. And tonight was a nice blending of those two things. I, I think that's where the show really makes you lean forward and kind of try and soak up all the words and, and, and really kind of put yourself in his position to see the profile that he's kind of establishing. When you add that together with the cool effect of Sarah reenacting herself through the crime while they're talking about the crime and, and she really puts herself in the she can she can literally see she stepped into Libby's mind yeah it it was it was it was a great extension of the Chrysler part of this scene because it goes towards what we were talking about that she's Chrysler 2.0 mm-hmm. that she is in a in a lot of ways even surpassed his abilities because she can reach this level of empathy uh, to the point where she can literally reenact these things. I mean, she has that great line to John where she talks about one doesn't need to have birthed a child to understand um, what a mother may or may not know about their child kind of thing. Yeah. Like, sh- she's really feeling herself and her skill set in this episode. Also, her walking through... Libby living the life in the matron's apartment. It was jarring because she was getting flashes of her and and she was jumping herself. Like she was like not sure that she was even evolving these skills. Like she was not even aware that it was happening, but it was happening and then she would like be jarred out of it. So it was very disorienting to see the Libby flash in the powder puff and see her in the bathtub and then she walks over there. So it was was very well done because it's, it's basically showing how her skills are evolving as she's going through it. Almost to the point where she's getting a little bit lost in it though, right? Right? Because when they, they finally bring her out of her trance, for lack of a better word, she almost seems a little bit startled uh, yeah. that that they're all still there. Almost like she had she had transported to a place where it really was just her and Libby mm-hmm. and the baby, you know? And the matron. And the, well, the matron still dead. Yeah. <laughs> still dead in every scenario. They're in corporeal form. Yes. So it was a really, it was a great, it was a great way to demonstrate a lot uh, with just acting, ju- just great editing and uh, choreograph of a scene with very little words. Uh, it was, uh, it was just really effective. It, it's, it's one of those things that makes the show shine mm-hmm. uh, at, at its best. Let's stay on Laszlo though, because he stumped at this case and he eventually contacts Karen Stratton and asks her for a drink he, obviously, he's a smitten kitten for her, right? We we established that last week. But then he shares kind of sensitive case information with her. And he knows her by reputation. We we, we learned last week he, he has read her work, but he doesn't know her. Were you surprised that he shared the specific details of this crime scene? That, as far as we know, none of the police have even been to the matron's apartment yet at this point. Except for the Isaacsons, yeah. Well, right, their, I think of the Isaacsons as, right, the Isaacsons are more team alienist than they are cops here. You know, they gave them, like, a sneak preview of the crime scene before bringing in the real police. So he's sharing this information with Karen Stratton well before it's public knowledge. Doyle has not been to this crime scene. And, sh- and but I mean, so Karen was taken aback by Laszlo's forthcoming with the notions of the case. And, you know, so her and I were both kind of like, oh my, like, what are you doing? I love the fact that they're drinking absinthe. The delicate ritual nature of of how you have to prepare that style of drink was just very befitting the two of them. I mean, her curiosity is piqued by the infanticide, like that gets her. But at the same time, she has kind of this like puzzled look on her face. Much the same as that they're still getting to know each other. There's there's no relationship. There's no anything yet. This is just two colleagues right now who are going out for a drink. Obviously, she wants something more. Drink to get drunk is their, is their cheers toast. 
you know, I, I don't think that Laszlo's also had an opportunity to interact with too many alienists. So I think the fact that he's got one in front of him and he's stumped, like you said, he's stumped on this case. So he's looking for someone to sort of powwow with. So I think he's moving the needle along on their friendship relationship track by doing this. It's a little unorthodox, but, um, you know, it's Laszlo. He can ask for forgiveness afterwards. I don't really think he is stumped. I think they actually have a pretty good profile. They've identified the person. That's, they're, you know, they're pretty well along in this case. It's really just a thing of... You think it's a ruse? That he just wants to get her attention or impress her maybe? He's looking for a reason to to have a drink with her. I think this is I think this is him putting the moves on. I think this is Laszlo showing game because I agree with you. I don't think he's actually interacted with a lot of alienists. But when he says, you know, there are facets of the female mind that I find very dis- difficult to grasp, I 100% believe that. And I think he has not interacted with many women. I think Sarah Howard is probably, or and Mrs. Palmer you know, uh, Mary Palmer are the two women that he probably has had the most interaction with in his life by far, other than his own mother. I think women are kind of a puzzle to him. Aren't we all to men, really? She must seem like real catnip to him, though, because she is a female, but she is also an alienist. So he understands that there is going to be a common language that they can speak. It's crime scene photos. It's not many guys are whipping out death photos as, you know, kind of a first date drink thing. That would be my kind of guy. I liked the fact that she was a little like dubious and she even, she questions him, you know, am I your subject or am I a sounding board? She doesn't immediately seize on the work, but then the case itself is too much for her to resist getting involved in and getting sucked into, which is very much how Lazlo would be. So I like that character trait about him. She, she really does continue to seem to be a female version of Lazlo, which I like. With with every passing moment that I like her more, it makes me more worried that she is going to turn out to be some kind of red herring plant or some kind of deceitful tool of the enemy. We're going to find out that she's like Libby's aunt or something like that. That was my initial take on her too. And the more that I see her, the more that I think that she's not up to, she doesn't have any dubious intentions with him. I don't have a lot to base that on. There's a connection between them that I feel is genuine. She's she's not working for the other side, I don't think. I don't know. I I just don't trust this show to give us happy things. And so I I feel like there's going to turn out where she is going to end up being some, like, she was some teacher to Libby. You know, she she was a mentor to Libby before Sarah became a mentor to Libby. Something like that. Something deranged. It's hard for me not to be the cynic here, but I I feel that this is, like, Laszlo needs a break between the, the loss of Mary last season what he had to deal with with the nap baby and Martha's case. This man needs a break. He needs a little modicum of happiness somewhere. And I feel that, I hope that this is the the real thing. It's in, it's genuine. Uh, before we move off of Karen and Lazo, one thing I did, I did like, I did want to give her props for calling him out on being uncomfortable at a lunch place that is not Delmonico's, uh, you know, because he, he says it's intimate. And she says, you know, by that, you mean it's not at Delmonico's. I actually, I liked her for that. I, I like, I like that she gave him a little shit. Uh, and, and I like that he has such a reputation that people know not only Laszlo Chrysler, but they know that he lunches at Delmonico's like every fucking day. I think right. that's great. Yeah. Also, props to you when she said in Fatricide was unusual, for, and speaking about mothers doing it, it made me think of you about one of your issues with this case from the very beginning, that it was a woman committing these crimes against a baby and that that, that is a an unusual it's kind anomaly. of thing. It's an anomaly. Let's back up to the scene right before Laszlo calls Karen. 
he has that very small interaction with Polly. So Polly, who we saw really briefly with the close-up magic, and they had that nice scene where Polly hugged him, and you know, clearly he is he is taken by Laszlo in some kind of father figure way. And Laszlo likes the boy clearly, but remember he did not pat him on the back, he did not hug him back. So right. Laszlo has a real wall up of emotion, the way you would hope a, a person charged with. A doctor and a patient would be, right. Yes, the way you would hope they would behave. But also sometimes kids need to be hugged. Sometimes kids need a little bit more than a patent. Uh, you did good there. I just wanted to bring this up only because Polly gives that real lingering look of disappointment before he leaves Chrysler's office. It was the kind of look that intoned some kind of foreboding to me. Either he is going to do something to another kid or to Laszlo or something. Because when you combine that with the rope around the neck trick, which yeah. I was not okay with. I was in, not okay with that. I was like, oh shit, this is not going to end well. In a show like The Alienist, we don't put ropes around people's necks and then pull them. We don't do that. And Polly. it's not for fun. And we just, no, It's not for fun. That, that is how people die on The Alienist. That is not a fun trick. So when you add that together with that kind of the look of disappointment and almost hurt at Laszlo essentially blowing him off without even realizing that he's blowing him off. I, I just want to put a pin in that because I, I don't think they would have introduced Polly last week with the close-up magic and make us be aware of him and then have this one little one-off scene if that's not going to go somewhere in the next three hours. So just putting it on the radar is something that really made my ears stand up, uh, made my ears perk and like the hair stand up on my on my arm. I really did not like the look he gave. It was such a mixture of hurt and not anger. Disappointment. I think that's the accurate feeling for that. Um, the other thing that Laszlo said too there is that, you know, he congratulates Paulie on the well-done magic trick saying Houdini, who's a contemporary of this time, couldn't have done it better himself. So I was just like, oh, yeah, I guess he would be around this time. We can jump actually to the end here with Laszlo, I think, because this was a little bit of levity, at least it was to me, when Fat Jack holds him up and keeps him from uh, getting out at 247 Hunter Street, which actually was a really great scene the way they did it, right? Sarah shows up and she starts investigating and then John shows up on the scene and kind of we rewind and we watch the whole thing start over again as he begins to invade the building. And then it rewinds again, and then Laszlo gets, you know, starts to get out to do his searching, but he's stopped right away by Fat Jack. I, I'm sure the scene made you laugh, but, but tell me what you thought about the scene between Fat Jack and Laszlo, where he uh, he gives him an impromptu therapy session about the origin of his nickname, Fat Jack. I'm sitting there and I'm laughing because I'm like, there is no way Fat Jack is understanding the every three words that Laszlo is saying. He's talking about the, the moniker being somewhat of a of an insult, and just the the words that he he's using are so contemporary to the time and it's just like fat jack is looking at him he's kind of like got a vacant stare kind of nodding a little bit like oh yeah yeah then after the the humor kind of wore off i was like oh shit this isn't gonna end well for laszlo because he's gonna say something and fat jack's gonna be like are you making fun of me he's something i felt like something was gonna turn so the fact that he was rescued by marcus at gunpoint i was very relieved at it wasn't gonna go anywhere good Fat Jack is the kind of guy who will be ensorcelled by big words for a little bit, but eventually will shake them off and resort to a physical response as just as a way to get back to even keel for what he understands. And and shift the power dynamic back to himself. I don't think he's going to allow himself to get sucked into a long intellectual conversation about... The health of the mind. And people giving malevolent nicknames in a way that is meant to, on its face, indicate a jovial nature, but is really mocking someone. I don't think he was going to, you know, uh, put up with that for too, too long. But so, yes, good, good thing that Marcus did show up. Let's get to Sarah, because 
Sarah is kind of like John, where they both tried to give apologies this week, but neither of them actually apologize. What did you think of Sarah's not apology to Bitsy at the beginning of the episode for putting her in harm's way? I was very disappointed in Sarah because we we actually talked about this quite a lot, you and I, the last episode. Sarah really needs to take a step back and do some reflecting here. And because she didn't actually say the words, I'm sorry, I apologize to Bitsy, it, it's making me worry that as she's developing her skills as like to be Chrysler in, in certain ways, she's maybe losing that human empathy card. Like I think as her skills grow, maybe she's losing a bit of her human touch. She's basically just saying, you know, that I, I exercise some poor judgment, but not reaching so far as to say, I'm sorry. Bitsy's Bitsy. She, she idolizes Sarah. So I think she's going to be okay with just that. I'm, you know, I never meant to put you in harm's way for a case. I think Bitsy's going to accept that as Sarah's level of apology. But as Sarah as a human being and as a person who's mentoring these women, I'm kind of mad at her. It's not, she's not setting a good example. Not at all. Cocky seems too strong a word, but it's the only word that really came to mind. There's a cockiness about Sarah as her powers are growing that is a little off-putting because she's not taking into account really the consequences of her actions. I feel like she should have been a lot more... I wrote remorseful. Yeah, a lot more remorseful in her apology for the fact that only because of the extent of harm that came to Bitsy so, so fast, and only as a direct response to Sarah egging her on to speed it up in the yeah, church. Yeah, Sarah coached her to, you know, become better. To escalate to, it. Yeah. You know, she, Bitsy was doing great, and then Sarah was like, great, you need to do it faster, and you need to get there quicker. Better, right. And, and yeah, you need to do, do better faster. And that's what causes Bitsy to really push the envelope and really set in the the whole works and you know to Bitsy's credit she actually kind of makes that point for us when she says that Libby wasn't going to attack her until she became a threat yeah. right until Bitsy became a threat in her eyes by catching her literally in the act that was all on Sarah because if not for Sarah telling her to go faster and and, and get it done and make her feel like you know she has to impress her boss Sarah doesn't understand the power dynamic Sarah is not Bitsy's equal Sarah is Bitsy's employer. And a mentor to her. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and Sarah is dropping the ball with these mentors all over the place. She's not taking good care in a, in a mentor sense. She's of, not being a good steward. Uh, of, of Bitsy or Millie or Libby. Or Libby, exactly, yeah. She, she straight up used Libby, I think, had she been a little more sincere with Libby and not straight up used her for information on Colleen, who was her original target, maybe Libby doesn't snap in the way that she does. I think a lot of this, but I think all of that comes comes back to Sarah coming into her power and not really knowing how, what to do with it yet. She She's still learning the extent of this newfound power that she has. Problem is, it's having real world consequences that affect other people. Like when she send, when she brings Joanna along with her tonight down to the docks mm -hmm. and they follow her and then she sends Joanna off, you know, to go get More. John yeah. and Laszlo and, and, um, the and then maybe with the Isaacs. It's like, yeah, that whole thing, like, you, now you you did it to Bitsy last week, and now you're bringing Joanne is not in this group. She's not Team Chrysler. She's not she's not Team Sarah. She's barely getting her feet wet. This poor girl. Cyrus isn't even really on the team anymore. You know, I mean, barely Stevie is there. Joanna's Joanna's a civilian, two times removed. She doesn't know. What are you doing to her? So I, I was like, you learned nothing from the Bitsy thing last week. You're just <laughs> rushing in. Uh, you know, headstrong, which is someone's going to get hurt, you know, and it looked out for Sarah tonight. She was able to get the baby, but that could have gone horribly wrong. She could have killed the baby out of panic. She could have easily killed Sarah out of panic if Sarah, you know, if Sarah before 
you know, Sarah wasn't super subtle with grabbing the ash in her hand. So Sarah needs to get a rein in on this power and use it in a more responsible way. Not to use the cliche, but like Uncle Ben says to Peter Parker, with yeah. great power comes great responsibility. I was angry at Sarah, too, because I felt the only time that she felt true remorse was when she wrote Libby Hatch on the, the chalkboard. And she said that she stood right in front of me and I didn't even see her. That, to me, was remorse because she felt that she her skills failed her that she didn't read the room like none of us read the room right on that one i mean like i was like libby's just she's not odd mike she's just you know she's just shy none of us read libby right that's where she felt remorse that she let herself down that she didn't you know follow through to the point that she would have seen libby for what she was initially i'm hesitant to use remorse there i feel like that was more yeah i don't know if remorse is the right word but she definitely felt like she let down, but I think she felt like she let down Laszlo in that scene. Because the way she directs it directly to him as she says it seemed more like regret from dropping the ball professionally than anything. Remorse comes from almost getting your employer killed. You know, remorse comes from maybe getting Cyrus's niece in trouble or hurt. You know, dropping the ball on, you know, Libby Hatch. I don't think that's remorse. Well, she just had more emotion in that statement than she did when she was with Bitsy. That's more disturbing. I think that's more troubling. Yeah. You know, her emotions are more worked up about missing a name recognition than almost, you know, Bitsy literally almost being killed. So what did you think of the confrontation with Libby and Sarah? One, were you surprised that we got it so early in the season? And two, did it meet your expectations on what this climax would be? I was surprised that we got to the point that we've identified our killer and are in the same building as her. So I can't say early in the season. I mean, we're at the halfway point, but it leaves a lot of time to not sure apprehend Libby, dissect her personality to see what's going on. But I did enjoy as, as much as you can, a scene where Sarah is, is in pursuit of her. She's figuring things out. And the fact that they're in the boarding house and it is truly a boarding house. Oh my God, there were so many doors. I, it was just... It was terror-inducing because, like, every, behind every door, there's 47 doors <laughs> that she's got to go through in order to find her. And she's got no idea where Libby is. And now knowing that Libby has stolen her father's gun and knowing what that means to Sarah, it's very well done in ratcheting up the tension. So I, I was there for it. I'm curious as to where they're going to spend the rest of the three episodes. Well, I mean, Libby's still on the loose, though, yeah. and and still without a baby. You know, there there's a really interesting conversation between Gugu and Libby in the alleyway there. And, uh, she, you know, he says, uh, the baby makes you happy, don't it? And she goes, I don't think she thinks I'm her mom. And then he says, not this again. Not this again. 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 Yeah. Can I get you a new one? You know, and then she says, I want my baby. But the again, the way he says it. It made me think, going back to when Sarah and John discover that someone had been in the office and that her father's gun was missing on the chalkboard, there are 10 eyes, 10 little eyes, and then one big eye yeah. in the middle. That made me think that this was, that baby Anne is her 11th baby. How's that for a theory? That each little eye represented a baby she has done this with before, which when you think about how many baby pictures are in that, that nursery room she has set up, I think maybe it's plausible. I'm with you because that's a very good theory. Because when we first got the scene of now what we know is Libby's room, I counted nine frames on that wall. Her baby plus baby Anna is 11. There you go. So the question is, does the big eye represent baby Anna as the current baby? Or does the big eye represent 
her baby and the other 10 are like the smaller ones because they're like the poor substitutes for her I big think it's, baby. I think the big eye is her baby. Like that's the eye that she wants. So that's that, that's what her eye is on. Makes a lot of sense to me. Very good, Michael. Very, very good. <sighs> the brain was working this week. The yeah. brain was working this week. There was some great stuff here after she finds the baby. Um, you know, and her and John, I think you and I probably had the same take on this. It was a very... Could this be a future picture of them as they're walking down, holding the baby and staring at each other as they walk down the steps of 247 Hutchinson Street? Let, let's fast forward, though, to her grandmother, to his grandmother's house, where they have a really kind of a meaningful conversation where he, he finally gives a real apology. She kind of forgives him, but also does some reflecting on her own. Did her end episode reflections make up for her her rash actions the last couple of episodes or still not all the way there yet? I think she's become more contemplative as this episode has gone on. So she had the moment with Bitsy. She had the moment saying that I didn't even see her. The conversation with John, she's definitely quieter. She's more contemplative. So I feel that the apology that John gives her does give her some food for thought. He insisted that she stay there after the detective agency was burgled. And I was like, there is no way she's staying in his house and something's not happening. So That was such a fucking patriarchal movement on his part, by the way. Like, John, have you met Sarah Howard? <laughs> Come on, bro. Like, well, when I leave, make sure you lock the Bolt boat. Bolt the door. Bolt the door. John, hello. Hello. Just because you're a pussy ass fuck doesn't mean Sarah is. Jesus Christ. Obviously, she's going to go I mean, go she's got a I... gun in her fucking boot. I mean, she she's is... the only one. She when, she when she goes into the apartment with Lucius at the top of the episode, mm -hmm. when she gets there and Lucius doesn't pull out his gun. They see a big puddle of fucking blood on the front room floor. She pulls out her gun. Lucius is a goddamn detective in the police agency and doesn't pull out a gun. She's the only one who is yep. ever armed in this group. Thank God for her and her little Derringer. Jesus Christ. <laughs> I was kind of shocked that these two fucked. Really? Yeah. It had to happen. Since she was telling him at the engagement party, I was like, something's going to happen. Well, one, I don't like them together. I don't buy them together. Oh, I no, I've liked them since season one. I know you ship her with Laszlo. I know. There's nothing about him that strikes me as plausible that she would be attracted to. I get why he's into her. You know, she's she's a woman who's a challenge and he's definitely kind of a masochist when it comes to trying to figure out women and and, 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 and all of that. So I get why John is into her. She could do so much better than him, like intellectual curiosity wise. She needs, just like he, she said to him, you need someone more like me, but not me. She needs someone more like Laszlo, even if it's not Laszlo. John is not going to scratch that ish. I mean, I'm sure he's got a great dick and obviously he's got a nice ass <laughs> and great abs and stuff and definitely looked like he was fucking good. Like she's definitely into it. Yeah, she was at her a good face. time. I mean, that was some sexy, sexy alienist stuff we got tonight. But yeah, I don't buy her with him i get him with her but not her with him so i was a little disappointed in it because i just don't buy them as a relationship but also it's kind of weird for them to do because they've strung it along for so long so why give it now but i guess they really have been building to this idea from john's point of view if anyway that he is so trapped in this bad relationship with violet so maybe this needs to happen story-wise as to make the Violet William Randolph Hearst subplot come to a head. Mm -hmm. Let, let's get to John. John is still having some woes. What did you think of his first attempt at an apology, which is very not an apology? I mean, he doesn't even come close to I'm sorry. He just basically says, I said some harsh things to you. I don't know why. I need time to figure out why. That's not really an apology in any book that has ever worked for me with any woman ever in my entire life, ever. But she seems okay with it. Were you surprised that he brought it up at all if he wasn't actually ready to apologize? I think he wanted to apologize in that moment. 
he was very emotional. Um, I, the, the conversation that they had at the engagement party when he lashed out at her, he was responding to the hurt that he'd been feeling from Sarah's rejection. He's thought about it since that intervening time. He looked himself that he was on the verge of emotion when he was talking to her. He, his face was, his eyes were very glisteny to me. He acknowledges that he says some harsh things, but I don't think he was just able to, to really say what he wanted to. It's hard to put yourself out there when the wound is still fresh. I feel. So he was, he was struggling. He was struggling and he was trying to do the right thing by her. He's trapped. Like the episode called the gilded cage. Like we talked about him being the one that's stuck in this gilded cage. I think he feels trapped and I don't think that he feels free enough to express himself in this moment. And I guess through the intervening actions throughout this episode, he realizes that he needs to, to say what he needs to say to her. So he, he has a little emotional journey here, but then he asked her to bolt the door in a very, you know, misogynistic kind of a way, but However, in light of that non-apology apology and him working through it, which you know, I give him credit. I give him credit actually for for bringing it up. Uh, I think she was wrong for approaching him at clearly a low moment after he had just been ambushed by his fiance and his future in-laws and his best friend very publicly. But he was wrong for taking it out on her. But, you know, our friends and our closest loved ones often bear the brunt of our frustrations because we know we can unload on them and they'll take it because they love us. So, you know, so I, he needed to apologize for sure. So I give him I give him a lot of woke points for acknowledging that he needed to work through and come up with the right words. I love the end, the the, the line, which actually is what we started this episode with, where he talks about. I said what I said because I wanted to hurt you. I love that line because that is a very real emotion and is a very real thing people do all the time to the people we love. We say things that we know are going to fuck with them because we want to make them hurt because we are hurt ourselves. I give him a lot of credit for coming up with that. Well beyond the uh, um, maturity level that I would have thought John possible but I am curious if he finally gives into his temptations. Now, granted, Sarah is also very into it, and maybe that's all he needed was finally the green light from her to go get it. I'm also wondering if William Randolph Hearst doesn't somehow propel that forward by essentially accusing him of going and fucking around on Violet with Sarah in that scene in the restaurant when he stops him as he's getting ready to leave and he says... Uh, it better be a scoop you're after. As we learn later on, he's very much thinking about Sarah in this scene because he's whining to Burns about John, you know, in cahoots with Sarah doing God knows what. And Burns gives some great misogynistic patriarchal lines about, you know, nosy lady detectives sticking their nose where they are, their noses don't belong. With unavailable gentlemen. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Like this is the Burns that we that we know and hate. Yeah, I mean this whole this whole dinner scene with William Randolph again writing him about scooping stories, but not working for him, but working for the enemy at the times, and then just hearing Joanna come in and all of the racism that Joanna gets without a word being said to her just by entering this dining the room. The scandalous looks. Oh my god. And then that she pulls him away in the world and, you know, uh, and even Violet is breaking. Like she has actually been, uh, has put up a decent facade of patience, even though it's clearly been feigned with him running off to do these cases and scoops and such. All late at night, all with Sarah. Yeah. I mean, even she's at her breaking points. And I wonder if this whole scene, he's had just one too many interactions and dinners with the Hearst family at this point where he's just done. Like he is, 
he has internally done because John is a loyal guy. John has a moral code. I think he would have been very hesitant to go forward with Sarah if he had real love and affection for Violet and felt that reciprocated from her. Not necessarily even Hurst, but if he felt, reflecting on Laszlo's words from his drunken toast, if he felt that Violet loved him the way Sarah loves him and, and Laszlo loves him and the Isaacsons kind of respect him, if he was getting any of that, a, a fraction of that from Violet, I don't think he moves forward with Sarah, but he's not. The engagement party was a real uh, straw that broke the camel's back, I think. And mm -hmm. then his dinner party and everything that happens in just such a short amount of time, I, I think, is just the the dam breaking wide open for him and his emotions. Like, he is finally accepted to himself that this is a dead-end life that will not go anywhere, uh, Violet and the Hearst family. Absolutely. And Violet is, she's awful to him. He says that he has to go in Delmonico's. She protests and, you know, he says, imagine if they were our little ones and a mad woman is on the loose after them. Wouldn't you want me to stop them? And she's like, off with you then. And you think that, like, she finally understands what he's after and his motivations. And then she dismisses. He tries to give her a kiss on the cheek and she dismisses it. So this is like the nail in the coffin in John's mind. I don't think he ever would have done that with Sarah as much as he might have wanted to, knowing that there was a future with Violet. Tag of the toe, close of the drawer on the Hursts. If he can. I don't know if he's going to be able to get out of it so easily because William Randolph Hearst is William Randolph Hearst. So. He's kind of involved Augie's Gildersleeve in Sarah's life. That right. there's, there's a thread that's going to need to be unraveled a bit. He is entangled with Violet. Obviously, they had an engage, a giant engagement party with the entire 400. The social scandal of the year when that marriage gets broken off, if yeah. it does. And he's got a real enemy in the guise of Hearst because Hearst is super powerful. And can destroy reputations by printing destructive uh, articles. You know, what he's threatening to do to Sarah or what Burns tells him to do to Sarah, writing an article about about Sarah and her detective agency and, and, and dropping innuendos, that passed for news in this yellow journalism, uh, you know, world. You don't need facts. You just need something that was sexy and scandalous to put as a headline. And that is news. Don't think for one second that if it gets out that Sarah spent the night at John's house, that that is not going to be run with. I have in my notes, wait until WRH learns that she's staying at his grandmother's <laughs> house. Let, just, just staying there, let alone the fact that they're fucking, but just the the act that she is staying there. Yeah, the impropriety of it, right? Oh my God, the impropriety of it. And not for anything, William Randolph Hearst pulls out the my boy line again when uh, John is moving to leave Delmonico's. He says, I had to work for the right to live above the rules, my boy. And it's just this implication of just disrespect. And it just makes me so fearful that John is not going to get out of this the way that he wants to. I'm optimistic. I'm a realist. Uh, let's get to odds and ends characters here. I want to start with Burns and Doyle, but particularly Burns. Were you surprised to find him kind of threaten Marco? It was an interesting conversation. He lays out his credibility, including that he's got five daughters. Mm -hmm. This poor man, I feel so bad for him. That's a lot of ladies. Yeah, but, but he says essentially, I get that poor broken women need to be told their children die as to separate the mother from the child to ensure that the both are not essentially saddled to a shitty life. But then says, basically, it should it better just be words, though. Essentially saying, you better not actually be doing anything to these babies because I'm I'm going to fucking come get you otherwise. I, this is 
aside of Burns that we have never, ever seen before. Were you shocked by this? I was shocked. I had to watch it twice because I'm like, wait, wait, what just happened here? Because I'm just so used to being him being such a slimy piece of shit and always working the angles that I was like, wait. What did he just say there? I, I I I couldn't believe that this was such a character twist for him that he was defending the side of right and not the side of corruption. That I I was just I was so shocked by it. I had to watch it twice because I, I and then with his actions and with what he was saying, I was like, this is the first time that anyone has brought up what is happening to these babies. We are five episodes into this and we've now discovered that there's no babies on that side. All these rich men and their mistresses and nobody's talking about where these babies are. So it made me think that he's not as bad as we believe him. We found his kryptonite. We found his soft spot. He threw me for a loop this one because I was not expecting him to threaten Marco. And Marco looks meek when Burns threatens him. Like, I'm going to come after you myself. And Marco gets an understood, like, and his head is down. He is definitely dog with the tail between his legs here. So I don't know if Marco has been caught out, but I was really pleased with um, with how Burns handled himself in this situation. You know, his whole reaction there may also play into a little bit of what Chrysler was talking about last week, about the creating the, the I just like the phrase, the miasma of chaos, <laughs> but maybe not actually doing anything to, to the babies, as far as he knows. Whatever he thinks is happening to the babies seems like he may not actually be involved in the business that Libby is getting up to. Uh, that was kind of my takeaway from from his meekness here, together with Chrysler's assessment following last week. Um, I thought it was interesting, though, that Marco, who is is kind of a piece of shit, he sticks up for the matron, though, and uh, and absolves her from any possible wrongdoing, saying that she's been there, uh, she's been there for so long. She knows more than anyone about what goes on, but that he trusts her implicitly. I was surprised that Marco would stick his neck out for anyone including the matron, no matter how close they do seem to be together or as thick as thieves as they are in their activities, I still wasn't kind of impressed that he stuck up for her. Um, I had a kind of a different feeling. I felt that he was kind of punting the ball over to the matron. Like, well, I, I don't know what's happening to these babies. Like it was implied that I don't know what's happening with them, but she's been with me for so long. She, I trust her. That's where I took that. Well, see, my, my reasoning is they're going through all of the women who may know all of the employees, which is essentially women, because Marco seems to be only the only male employee at the lying in hospital, uh, of, of who know about the activities of the hospital. And Marco says, none of them know what's going on. Uh, then he says, well, one of them does, but she's been with me forever. Essentially, like she's above reproach. Yeah, so I took it that he was actually kind of vouching for her, not that he was thinking that she did anything wrong. This scene and this dialogue is necessary because it leads to the fact that the matron missed the first day of work in forever. But I guess that doesn't really change the fact that he's kind of still a piece of shit. At the very least, he is extremely negligent in the oversight of his hospital and in the care of his employees and of the poor women who are brought before him. But I also wanted to give Doyle a little bit of a shout out, though, because he has the audacity to suggest that, that maybe they reopen the baby nap case. How dare he? <laughs> now that new information has come and defends Sarah to Burns and to Marco here, you know, says that no matter what she is, she has her limits that she won't cross kind of thing. Mm -hmm. I, I thought it was interesting that Doyle would stick up for Sarah here, but you could see how Doyle kind of like Moore would be really turned on by a fiery female who stands up to him and puts him in her place. That's a real like, you know, boner maker for certain guys. And I think Moore and Doyle are probably definitely in that category. Um, 
But of course, Burns, who was about to have this great moment with Marco, you know, standing up for the babies, right before that says, no, of course we're not going to reopen the case. It just proves that Martha Knapp had an abettor. And that was just a great line because he says abettor with such a fantastic Irish accent, uh, <laughs> which I will not try to do, but it was great. And you should go listen to it again. Absolutely. I agree. Uh, it was just, it was very disturbing that Burns just shut him down so completely. Uh, what did you think of Bitsy being back on the job so fast? I was I was like, yeah, fuck yeah, Bitsy. Get on that, girl. Yeah, Bitsy, Bitsy is just, she's remarkable. She really is. I mean, kudos to she, her. She's a, she's a tank in the best way possible. She is the ultimate kind of employee you want. Like, nothing will keep her down, and I really appreciate that. Like, she literally like, poisoned to almost the point of death last night. Last night, and she is at her desk. Having tea. Right after she gets out of the hospital. And chipping in, like she's giving great information about the picture, and you know she found she... the one picture, right, of that of Libby that the the cops don't have. Like, so she, there's like probably one picture elsewhere of Libby, because this time photo- photography is not that common. You know, she was only at the lying in hospital for what two days, feels like, and she found the one picture. So, she, and... I mean, she, she she found out a lot of information. She is in, a like two font... shifts. Yeah, she is a font of information. I give Bitsy a lot of credit. And I like the fact that she presented Libby as not as a straight monster, because that is the easy trope here, is that Libby obviously is a one-dimensional villain who is just murdering, uh, doing bad things to babies, and now has escalated into a murdering, matron-murdering psycho, which is kind of where John goes. John John is ready to, to chalk her up as a lost killer of people who has now, you know, turned bloodlust you know, crazed. And he's and really the only one. He's really only, he's the you know, only one. Because painting he la- her, right. Right, because, well, I think he lacks the sophistication of the mind, of, of the nuance of what's going on here, which Bitsy, with what kind of formal education does Bitsy probably have, seems to have a better grasp on the humanity of the situation. So I really liked her in that scene sticking up for Libby. I thought that was a great little toss-away line that, that had some weight to it. Uh, yeah, Bitsy is a total asset to this case. So uh, really, really happy that we got to see her back in uh, back on the job today. I think we have a little bit of a history corner. Mine has to do with the history of mugshots. So Colleen is brought in and she's you know sent to look through a lookbook. And essentially, we're looking at the, the time and place where, where mugshots were, were invented. A French police clerk named Alphonse Bertillon was frustrated with the lack of standardization in the indexing of photographs of suspects. It was difficult to identify, prosecute, and sentence repeat offenders appropriately. So he developed a system to photograph and record physical characteristics of criminals that became known as the Bertillon system, revolutionizing criminology. This system is the reason why suspects are photographed from three angles. So side left, side right, and full on. And back then they did it with and without hats due to the prevalence of hats. So this technique was developed and uh, adopted in Paris in 1882. The system also brings in the, the different length, length of uh, physical characters, such as uh, length of the nose, length of the head, and, and eye color, hair color, so that cops could index physical characteristics on something called Bertillon cards, and they could use physical characteristics to identify suspects as opposed to names. In 1887, police departments across the United States began adopting the system. And in 1893, New York superintendents of prisons sent a clerk to Europe to study this radical new system and implementing it because repeat offenders were not easily identified. They were being sentenced as first offenders and typically back on the streets in a very short amount of time. So the standardization Bertillon introduced is still in use today. It's interesting to to think that 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 science is already, what, 130 years old-ish? 
we still use versions of that today. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, and, and eyewitness accounts and, and eyewitness IDs are actually very much discounted by courts in criminal investigations. You, you need, it's not enough anymore just to have those. You need to have corroborating evidence. Be- and physical, right? Physical evidence. Yeah, but before you're going to, um, because eyewitness, because eyewitness ident- identifications are so notoriously unreliable the way we look at them now, but they're still used. It's the same way that people still use lie detector tests, even though you can't use that as admissible evidence in a court, but people still use them. So it's really interesting to look at this kind of this antiquated thing that is so old, but we still use it today. You know, again, I love the show using this technique, which it's just cool because it also gives you a chance to do some great screen stopping and, and looking at some of these pictures and looking at the information, like some of the information I pulled about, about Libby from her file uh, and not all of it was terribly clear, but so she was identified as number 3000. Mm-hmm. Uh, her alias was given as Lena Scanlon. Don't think I didn't Google that. Yeah, it was either Lena or Lana, but Lana seems like too modern of a name. So I'm going with Lena. Lena Scan- is definitely much more of a contemporary for the time. Yeah, so Scanlon, uh, 18 years old, 5'7", 125 pounds. Uh, she was listed as having, you know, fair complexion, light hair. But she had a known associates was listed. It looked to me as definitely last name Matthews, Constance Matthews. Didn't find anything on her either. I couldn't. I couldn't find anything on Constance Matthews, but uh, it was enough that they they were able to identify that this Lena Scanlon was someone who ran with the Dusters, and and that's how then we find out that she actually, in fact, is Gugu's wet nurse. Mal, yeah, wet wet nurse slash kinkmaster. <laughs> they had a real natural born killers vibe in that whole scene, mm-hmm. uh, it, like real like Woody Harrelson and uh, Juliette Lewis mm-hmm. v- vibe, and it was super disturbing. In the same way, those two were disturbing in Natural Born Killers. I thought it was kind of like a nice little homage in in their murderous love that they were indulging with uh, with each other. My history corner entry today is actually about the building that houses the Howard Detective Agency, 808 Broadway. I was staring at the building and we actually get a great shot of the building in this episode when John and Sarah emerge from the carriage and Sarah looks up and realizes the lights have been on and and admonishes her girls for leaving on the light. But we get uh, that interested me less than the set design that the show had established. So we see the 808 on the corner, and we, and we know a couple times they've referenced 808 Broadway, and the building is listed as the Broadway building. That is actually not the front of the building the way it actually exists, which surprised me that the building used a real address, but not the real front of the building. So I'm going to give you guys a little history about 808 Broadway. Uh, It's located, obviously, on Broadway and 11th Street. It was built in 1888 by James Renwick Jr., who was really not known for this building, but was known for several. I mean, he is the architect of many famous buildings, not only in New York, but in Washington, D.C., and and kind of around the world. But in New York, he's known for Grace Church in particular, which is actually just two doors down from where 808 Broadway is located. I believe it's 802-804 Broadway. He also designed St. Patrick's Cathedral. My grandparents were married in St. Patrick's Cathedral. Your parents were essentially members of the Alienist. They were background artists on the Alienist. The real building is actually built in the same kind of Gothic style as Grace Church, which Renwick did intentionally. He wanted the building, he wanted 808 Broadway to kind of blend in with Grace Church and the rectory building that he had built. So when you looked at it from a certain angle, it all had the same kind of Gothic architecture. And and one of the things, if you, if you pull up a picture of 808 Broadway, one of the things you're going to notice is the top row of the windows have really pointed Gothic arches. Which, when you look at, you would think of a church like St. Patrick's, uh, Patrick's Cathedral or something from, like, medieval Europe. Uh, it has uh, the real pointed arches, which this building that they're using in the show does not have. Uh, Renwick is also larger 
it's three stories higher than the building that they use in The Alienist. It was originally opened as a place of business for stores and manufacturers and, and office space, essentially. Uh, it was converted in 1981 to a co-op building, to, a, to residences, and it was renamed the Renwick Building. Today, the average sale in that co-op goes for $1.36 million. And the average rent of an apartment there is $7,255 per month. So probably a little bit more than Sarah and her detective agency are paying per month. I would suggest you guys go to the Daytonian and Manhattan blog. In particular, there's a post from June 4th, 2015. He actually did a post for this for this building, talking about it. And in the post, he actually goes through the history of the building, all of the different residences, and goes into like their lives. And it, it's a real person in the day. It puts you in the life story of people who actually rented office space in this building it was used for manufacturing housing it was uh, a lot of different different textiles uh worked out of there at one point the american book company which was the largest book publisher in the country following the merger of far four large book publishers uh in 1890 the american book company once ran its offices out of 808 broadway so it's got this real storied history that goes on from its building in 1888 all the way through being converted to residences. So go check out the Taytonian in Manhattan blog from June 4th, uh, 2015, and you'll learn some more interesting things about 808 Broadway. That is so cool. All right. So we are in the back half of the season. Baby Anna has been reunited with her parents. We have identified her killer. Hopefully there are no more dead babies. And now the chase is on. So or rabbits. Or dead rabbits. Oh, yeah. No more dead rabbits, Albert. Don't want, don't want that. Do we spend three more episodes on the chase or are we going to be learning about Libby's mind? Well, I think, I think both of those things are related. I think, I think they're going to continue to work on a profile of her as she's mutating in order to try and figure out where she goes next. I think that's where they're stumped when this episode ends is they've got baby Anna back. As far as they know, no other babies are currently missing. How do they catch Libby? They have to try and kind of figure out where this new version of her who, who murders women, adult women, as well as maybe does bad things to babies is going to kind of strike next. So my, my guess is that's where the focus shifts. But I have a feeling that we are going to get at least one other snatch baby. I don't think Libby is done snatching babies because she still hasn't quenched the thing inside of her that's making her do this to begin with. This need to replace her own baby, which she so much wants back one of the things that baby Anna had done wrong was grow. You know, they, they talk about it in the episode about how she was probably getting to a size uh, where uh, Libby couldn't keep up with the lie to herself that this was her actual baby. So you have to think she's going to be definitely on a hunt for a little tiny newborn that she could kind of start the process over again. I think they're definitely going to dive into the profile. I feel like Libby is going to become even more unhinged because her hideout has been found her baby's been found not her baby but her current baby has been found and i just think that the we're going to see more of her unraveling as they develop the profile i i think she's going to become actually more dangerous if that's even more possible i don't think the the death count is quite done for libby just yet i'm not sure she's going to have the opportunity to snatch another baby it, it fits with it but i'm not sure she's going to be able to maneuver it because she's been found at the lying hospital so she can't go back there so like her pipeline for babies has kind of dried up to take that you know, milk metaphor pretty deep there. She's going to become more dangerous as as her her layers are exposed. She runs with the dusters, so she's she's got quite um, a gangster network to protect her, to facilitate her murderous 
vulnerable, creepy thoughts. I'm a little worried for what's going to happen as we go forward because we do have three episodes, three more hours of her unhinged and now unleashed. So we don't know where she's going to go next. So she's definitely more dangerous now. I agree she's more dangerous now, and I think it's because she's unpredictable. And she's injured. Which is what Laszlo is talking about, that as she mutates, predicting what she does next becomes more difficult. So I think that's what makes her more dangerous, is she is in this metamorphosis stage of her psyche. So not being able to predict what she's going to do, I think is what makes her more dangerous. I don't agree with you that she can't get access to the lying in hospital. The place is a fucking shit show. They're all so messed up there. I don't believe for one second she can't walk back in there and snatch a baby. I think that's totally plausible thing that may happen. And and another thing to, to keep on with the Libby aspect is the emulation of Sarah. If my theory is right, we're not done with the single white female aspect of this. Maybe she goes after John if she if she realizes that they're together. Maybe, you know, who knows what she does. So I, I don't think we're done with that angle. I like that theory a lot, so I'm really doubling down on it. And of course, we have the social stuff. We have what happens with John and Violet and Sarah now. What happens with Lazo and Karen? So lots of question marks still up in here. What happens with Lucius and Bitsy? That does it for another episode of Meet at Delmonico's, the Alienist podcast. I just want to thank you guys so much for listening. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Five stars would be greatly appreciated. Thank you. Meet at Delmonico's, the Alienist podcast, is an original production of Pod Clubhouse. Recorded, edited, and produced at Pod Clubhouse Studios. For more information, visit us online at podclubhouse.com.